0: Creative journey. It's easy to get lost, but don't worry, you'll lift off. Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk. Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I am your host, Andy J. Pizza! Have you ever felt like making art? You know, the juice just wasn't worth the squeeze, metaphorically speaking, unless your art is making lemonade. Then, literally speaking, have you ever felt that way? I feel like that sometimes. Sometimes it's like, man, I put so much freaking effort into making this piece, and the effort just does not correlate with the effect that it has on people. Poured my time, my heart, my soul into this thing, and you show it to a friend, they're like cool and you're like oh man like so demoralizing and it makes you just want to give up we are in the middle of a series called the creative zero to hero series and it's about how do you go from you know never having picked up the instrument to writing the best song that that you could possibly write. Like what are the touch points? We've been working through them. We talked about gaining some skill, knowing your story, stylizing it, having creative spaces. We did an episode on psychology, which was number five, but we're gonna do another episode on psychology because I actually built this whole series on the psychology portion because I was so pumped about it because I felt as though psychology, that word gave name to something I've been trying to get at on this show. I've talked about it through the lens of creative mechanics. Like how does the art work on people? And then I stumbled upon stories about Don Shirley going from being a musician to being a psychologist, back to being an even better musician because of his understanding of psychology and his treating his art almost as applied psychology. That was kind of the breakthrough. It's very, super interesting. And it's not just people that actually got a psychology degree. I think it's all kinds of creators. You know, my favorite creators, the people that are able to show up on a consistent basis and move you on purpose that you can trust to get into your head and into your heart and do uh, something that's not just cool, but explosive and meaningful those people when you go listen behind the scenes they always have a sense of the psychological component of how not not just making art work but knowing how art works on people and so this is another episode it's not a part two to the last psychology episode it's a whole other episode self-contained on a different take we're going to dive into some Carl Jung, if you're familiar. Uh, He was a guy who studied with and worked on a bunch of Freudian stuff, but then eventually parted ways, had a, you know, basically was like, It's not all about libido, uh, so to speak. He actually totally changed the word, but he did a bunch of interesting stuff. He was both, he was kind of the sweet spot between psychologist and artist because he took, it was so early in this practice, this discipline of psychology that it really hadn't been fully formed. And I think that's probably what gave him the license to get as weird as he did. And he did. And it's one of the reasons I've just been a big fan of him. And so I want to dive into some of his ideas Yes, there's some weird ones. Hopefully it'll stretch you make you just get loose and creative. But there's also some practical, you know, more science-y kind of stuff in this as well to not just keep making artwork that's just cooler than the last thing, but how do you actually make something that creates a chemical response in your audience and really connects you to them? Let's go. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. Another podcast I want to tell you about. You should check out Design Matters. I was a huge fan of Design Matters before I ever made this podcast. Big influence on me. It comes from the TED Audio Collective with show writer, artist, and designer Debbie Millman hosts conversations with designers, writers, artists, and all kinds of great contemporary thinkers. People like Roman Mars of 99% Invisible, I Weiwei, Ethan Hawke, Ashley C. Ford, David Byrne, all a ridiculous, the people that they have had on that show are just ridiculous. Go check it out. Check out this inquiry into the broader world of creative culture that they do on that show. Find and follow Design Matters with Debbie Millman wherever you listen to podcasts. So the first psychological component that I wanna talk to you about and talk about how you can level up your creativity and make it more explosive, just not not just cooler, is synchronicity. synchronicity. We're gonna go deep into that in just a second, but before we do, to set it up, I gotta tell you some other stuff. What we're gonna be talking about today is I'm gonna give you three examples of how to use psychology in your work So that you're not just making your work just a little bit cooler each time. You're not just making it sweeter. Last time we talked about how early in my creative practice, I was just trying to make the next piece just a little bit sweeter, man, than the thing that I made before. And at some point, though, you get this law of diminishing returns where, you know, you're putting more effort in. You're trying to make it better, but you're essentially just taking something sweet, like a soda, and just adding candy to it. Like it just doesn't need to be any sweeter than it already is. And people aren't going to like it better. In fact, at some point you're going to overwork it and it might actually just be worse you stuff a coke bottle full of twizzlers and gummy bears at some point people are like i just I, you know it's too much for me and that's kind of what can happen if that's the mode that you're creating from and that's how you're trying to level up your creative practice and instead if once you get to this stage of the creative journey if you will start to implement not just trying to make art work but figuring out how art works on people aka psychology aka using your practice as a kind of form of applied psychology like we talked about gestalt principles gestalt is the study of human perception and the artists that really know how to when you go to the movie theater to see a movie from that director you know you're going to cry you know you're going to feel something you know you're going to laugh like the people that can show up and consistently do that those are the professionals Steven Pressfield, the guy who wrote the, the War of Art. I have to pause before I say that every time, because I always am going to say The Art of War. Stephen Pressfield talks about what it means being a pro artist. And I have been increasingly suspicious. I'm getting suspicious. Hmm, maybe creative pep talk is primarily for professionals. We go all over the creative map, We go deep into the creativity side. We go deep into the the practice and even kind of the career side of creativity. But I had a feeling like I don't, it's not just for people that have a creative career or even want one. It's more just a creative practice. But even so, the way that I approach creativity and the way I think about it, it's a little bit of a demystified thing. Yes, there's always the quasi-random element of chance, encounter where you stumble upon something that you just could never have done on purpose there is the mysterious channeling the muse kind of thing i totally agree that with that but i also just approach creativity through the lens of there are a whole bunch of things that you can control including your posture for receiving the muse you know you can show up to the metaphorical drawing table or literal drawing table (laughs) there's a lot of metaphors going on i never know which one's which but you can show up to the easel and you can you can approach it. You can get your mind in a headspace where you're maximizing the potential for the muse to show up. And there's all of these, there's all this like practical scientific stuff you can do so that you can 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 create consistently good work. And that's the kind of artist that we're talking about each and every week. And so we're talking about the professional artist, whether you're a uh, you do this for a living or not. And if you're going to create a practice of it, create a habit of it, if you're going to create a relationship with between you and an audience, one of the most essential and interesting pieces to me is the psychology component because understanding the gestalt, understanding how humans perceive, that puts you in a position to do some really interesting things to create some interesting feelings and emotions and ideas and sensations within your audience. Now the journey doesn't end there. We're going to, we're going to talk about saying something in the next episode, the final episode of the series, because once you're able to bend a human perception to your will, which (laughs) I don't know if anybody can fully master that, but once you have an idea and you're playing in that world, then you're not content to just do it as a parlor trick. You want to actually do something meaningful. You wanna do something interesting with that once you have the ball in your hands, once you have the attention. And we're gonna to get to that, but for now, let's talk about the psychology. We're gonna change the metaphor the from metaphor last slightly week. Slightly it's the same changed. metaphor. We're gonna use it slightly differently. I don't know if Connor could give me some change the be metaphor aware, you alarm, you know, alarm bells. Don't scare anybody, Connor. Sometimes we do that with our effects. Uh, but just be some kind of, of bee-doo, bee-doo, just be aware of the metaphor is slightly changing. Last week we were talking about how as you're trying to just make your work just a little bit sweeter and you're just stuffing more piles of candy in it you know kind of like orbits from the 90s you ever see those i think they drank them on clueless i thought they were so cool man uh i was a different kind of child uh, as a young boy uh but but i was like orbits man you know you're making your own orbits at home stuffing in gummy bears in the coca-cola at some point maybe you throw mentos in there And all of a sudden, it doesn't just get sweeter, it actually gets explosive. There's a chemical combustion. And we talked about how when you're making your creative work, man, sometimes you do something. It might just something that you made in seven seconds. You put it up online and it actually creates an actual chemical response within the audience. And I say actual on purpose here because... I, because i mean actual because i mean really i don't mean a metaphorical this time i'm not talking about a metaphorical sensation i'm talking about a, a physical sensation within the brain or heart or body of your audience and so i want to change the metaphor a little bit and just sh- twist it up twist it and turn it until we're saying now your art is the mentos and Your audience's brain, it's a chemical soup of Diet Coke. And so you're throwing your art, your Mentos into the Diet Coke. How do you create those sensations? How do you play with human perception to create those moments? One of the ways that you do it is through synchronicity. Now, synchronicity is a term coined by that psychologist I mentioned at the top of the show, Carl Jung. Carl Jung uh, was very fascinated by what we perceive to be meaningful coincidences, patterns in your everyday. You know, maybe you see a blue jay in the morning and then you see one just a couple hours later and you're like, what's the universe saying? So, <laughs> I'm not making fun of anybody. That's me I'm talking about. But that's what I do. I'm a, I'm a huge sucker for synchronicity. And in fact, I think that's the reason I am obsessed with story. Is that story's great storytelling, traditionally speaking, which I'm I'm really partial to traditional storytelling. Not in terms of the topics or the point, but just the methodology of what a story is. I'm not not super interested in experimental storytelling. I like a lot of movies that aren't good stories, but I like traditional storytelling. And the reason I like it, I think, is because it's kind of the job of the storyteller to produce a experience of synchronicity on purpose, on command To me, a great story is synchronicity on demand. If I know that I'm going to go watch Jared Bush tell a story, he's one of the main writers of Zootopia and Moana and Encanto, when I go there, I'm expecting a promise of synchronicity, of some kind of story loop, something that comes full circle that I get a different twist of it. You know, we talked not long ago about Buzz Lightyear and this kind of synchronicity that I'm talking about, this callback, it's when a phrase or something, an object starts at the beginning and then comes back, but the meanings changed in a meaningful and interesting way that is surprising and unexpected, like Buzz using Woody's line against him and saying, This isn't flying, this is falling with style. Those little moments, woo, I'm a sucker for those things. Now, when I say synchronicity, I really am just talking about any kind of pattern that you can use in your work to this effect. I have a lot of friends that are very obsessed with puns in my life. And, And I'm not i'm not super into puns i'm not especially susceptible to puns the person editing this show right now is a massive pun fan his name's connor jones and we went to a podcast conference a couple weeks back and there was a live podcast and there was a moment within that live podcast where they did a run of puns, a pun run, if you will. I don't think that's a pun, but, Connor, I still feel like maybe that wordplay you like. Pun run that was just unparalleled. It was ridiculous. They were doing one pun after another, like 10 puns. They were all pretty good puns. And I chuckled. I chuckled to myself, but what really got me laughing was the man sat next to me dying. Every single pun, Connor lost it that much more to the point where I actually think at first there was a shift in the audience around us. There was a point where they're like, is he making fun of these puns? And they're like, no, he's having the best time of his life. Wait a second, he's gone delirious with laughter. Is he okay? That's how much connor loves puns and i looked into a little bit like what happens and i don't fully understand the brain science but what i gathered was when a pun hits a brain it hits the left side of the brain and a pun is kind of a rube goldberg machine within someone's consciousness so in last episodes, we were talking about this piano player, Don Shirley, and I was thinking about if you go up after the show and he sat at the uh, piano and he just finished and you go up and, you, and you're like nervous and you, you're like, oh, what should I say? How can I open this up and just seem casual? Ah, oh, pun, that'll, that'll do it. And you think, hey, Don, keys to meet you and you point... Point to the piano keys. I didn't say it was going to be good. It's, it's awful. Keys to meet you. What happens is that pun hits Don Shirley's brain. And it smacks the left side of his brain. And his left side of his brain, this logical part is like, keys? keys to meet me what the heck did, that doesn't that's nonsense what the heck is going on and that sets off the inner goldberg the inner rube goldberg that rolls the bowling ball down the hill to the right side of the brain that smacks the right side and the right side's like wait a second Keys rhymes with please because the right side is good at noticing patterns. But that's kind of why I think synchronicity is such a big deal to us. But it recognizes the pattern and it's like, wait, keys, please, keys like a piano. He's making a joke, and then that sets off a candle that lights a string that is tied to a courier pigeon coop and it undoes the door and the pigeon has a little note on its talon flies back to the left side of the brain and all of this stuff all those little lightning moments you're actually feeling the sensation in your brain of this thing happening happening sometimes they trigger emotions as they're going about that little candle in the string that pigeon coop that's your heart opening up. And and the pigeon flies back to the other side with this little message on his little pigeon foot. And it says to the left brain, it's a joke. And the left brain, depending on how sensitive you are to puns, the left brain's like, ha. Or if you're Connor, it, it's more like, ah! You know, <laughs> he just absolutely loves it. And it's an interesting little sidebar because I think it, gets to the point of being aware of who your work is for because you know when you throw mentos into a coke it has an explosion a a coca-cola classic you throw that mentos in it it's gonna react but if you throw it into a diet coke it's gonna have a much bigger reaction just because the chemistry the chemicals in that bottle are different and the same goes for our brains and we're all different. We all have different neurobiology of, of some kind or another. And for me personally, when it comes to puns, I have kind of a, I think probably a classic brain when it comes to puns. But when you throw a pun into a brain like Connor's, it is massively explosive because Connor doesn't have a classic brain. He's got more like a diet brain. I I set all that up just for Connor. He's been crushing it, leveling up the editing on this show. If you're home alone, can you just give a clap out to Connor because he's crushing it in his diet brain. He doesn't have a diet brain. Honestly, the people that I know, I have so many close friends that happen to be pun maniacs. They're all smarter than me. They're super creative. I think they're on to something. I wish I had a pun brain. And I love you, Connor. (laughs) You can cut the diet brain if it hurts your feelings. Anyway, It's an interesting thing to think about who you're making this for. You're not making it for everybody. And I actually just created a little miniature pep talk for Patreon backers all about how when I went to the on-air fest, the podcast fest, it caused me to kind of get in my head when I came back to start to record because I was surrounded by... NPR people and public radio people and, and fancy podcasters from LA that only interview celebrities and, and serious writers and just, all, you know, people with amazing degrees and that works for the New Yorker. And I just came back and be like, I don't think I can say anything. I don't know. I'm an idiot from the Midwest. I call myself pizza. What the heck do I think anybody wants to hear from me? But I had to remember like, I'm throwing these things in a particular type of brain. My work isn't for everybody. And I need to not try to make stuff for people that don't like me. For people who, when I throw my brand of Mentos, Andy J. Mentos, in to their diet brain, it just fizzles. And I just have to realize like, no, that so that that's something to think about. But it's just it's mainly an aside to talk about Connor. Anyway, back to synchronicity on this show. We like to give examples from all types of creative practitioners. When you go explore scientists experimenting and trying to understand creativity within the brain, that's how they approach it. I approach it in the same way. I think about you know, I, in the in the words of Willem Dafoe, AKA Green Goblin. You no, know, I'm some. I'm something a, of a, a scientist, a scientist myself, myself when it comes to creativity. In that, I don't discriminate. I ultimately believe that it all kind of works the same when it comes to creative breakthrough. And I think there's a lot of good evidence to say that that's true. And the reason why I always try to give examples from multiple. Mediums and and disciplines is because, A, we, of course, we have a bunch of different types of creators that listen to this show. But on top of that, no matter what type you are, sometimes it's actually more helpful to hear it from a different perspective than your own because you're just too close to the page. You gotta, if you can step out and see it from a different angle, sometimes that illuminates something in a way that just your own examples can't first example i want to talk about synchronicity is hannah gadsby i'm not going to get there's no spoilers here but in her latest special douglas did the most incredible display of psychological gestalt prowess of any creator i've ever heard she said that early on i'm not going to tell you the punchline but i'm going to tell you the setup Early, early in the show, she says, I have this amazing Louis C.K. joke. It's incredible. It's so good. I'm happy to brag about it right now. But here's what's going to happen. Later on, I'm going to come out of nowhere with that Louis C.K. joke. And you're going to laugh because it's hilarious. And then you're going to laugh because I told you you were going to laugh. There's going to be a second layer. But then there's going to be a third layer because another chemical combustion is going to happen because I told you that you were going to laugh at how I told you you were going to laugh. And when that comes around in the special, it happened to me exactly as she described it, and it was this feeling of understanding the psychology of your viewer and then using it. This brings up an interesting thing in me where... I am aware that we are talking about playing with human perception in our art. And I think one of the reasons why there is resistance to this in the arts community, why we keep it mysterious and therefore make worse work because we don't understand it, because we won't embrace that when you pay money at the movie theater, you're saying, I'll give you this money if you'll make me feel something. And you know that you've agreed. That's the agreement. However, we want to pretend like it's art in that it's some kind of church experience, which I do think that that can be a component, the transcendent, but I actually think it happens more frequently with the artists that understand human psychology and work within that human perception. However, I recently tweeted that I, in a way and this isn't a truth statement it's more like a concept creation it's just a a way of turning the the crystal and refracting a different point of view i don't know if i can really say i'm a fan of art not just because there's bad art so to speak but more evil art i have a this strong suspicion that the the, the people that really impact culture i believe that those artists are definitely aware of and exploiting and using human psychology. However, I would argue that many of them are not doing so in a way that is helping our species. And potentially some of them are actually using it for the opposite, whether they know it or not. And it's not my place to judge, but I get the sense that that is true. And so I have this weird relationship with art. Being a fan of art, being a fan of something so powerful as to be playing with and working with applied psychology seems like being a fan of anything powerful, being a fan of money, being a fan of religion, being a fan of politics. It's, very, it's a weird thing to think, oh, I'm, I'm a fan of marketing. Because anything powerful... Can be powerfully used for good or powerfully used for evil and human suffering. And so, as I'm actually, you know, had a pause when I started thinking about doing these episodes, not because I think I'm teaching you anything, so to speak, or giving you some, you know, extremely dangerous tool, but I think opening this notion and exploring that this is, in fact, a big part of the creative journey it does definitely release the responsibility from me. You know, I'm having to wash my hands of saying, I don't know who's listening to this and I don't know what they're going to do with this kind of information, but I don't feel like that's my purpose. I just wanted to highlight that as we go into the idea that art is some kind of applied psychology and experiment on human perception, not all artists use that for good, but I do think, the artists that do great things do use human psychology and that we ask them to. I think that's the agreement. We go into that saying, make me feel something. And anyway, I digress. Back to the synchronicity. This is a long point. There was a bunch of uh, tangents and explorations, but I think they were, I enjoyed them. I hope that they were helpful to you. Let's talk about Christoph Niemann for a minute one of the most celebrated illustrators of our time, maybe the most, he does an incredible job with synchronicity and pattern play where he will take, you know, a photo of an avocado and he will see the pattern of it being a baseball glove, the pit being the ball and the outside of the shape being the glove. And then he will do a painting below the, avocado of a baseball player and that being the glove he does this all the time as kind of creative play but he also does it in his professional editorial work where he's taking he's seeing a pattern a synchronicity between two shapes and playing with them and what happens is when you catch it when you understand it it might one of the reasons i want to highlight this is because that synchronicity might, that aha might happen so quick that you're not even realizing that it's happening, not even realizing that's what's compelling you to follow that guy, to buy a piece from that guy. But it's actually working with human perception. And part of this piece of the journey is about recognizing that these little zaps, these little Mentos moments are happening within you on a regular basis with your favorite types of art and to be, and try to get an awareness of when they're happening and then don't stay there. Actually zoom in. What was the moment they happened? How did it occur? Isolate it, study it, understand. We're going to talk about two more principles of psychology, but understand that they are using something if they consistently make work that moves you that touches you that does something inside of you that stirs you up they're using some tools of human perception and if you start to gain garnish some kind of awareness of when those things are happening and be observant of yourself you can start to deconstruct what are the pieces that are doing that With someone like christoph neiman there's a lot of artists that use this kind of synchronicity in their illustration work now let's say you don't want to be as cerebral as that or on the nose or as conceptual I could see things like my buddy Go Shrimp, background designer, original background designer for Adventure Time. He does these massively dense, crazy illustrations with all kinds of stuff going on, and there's synchronicity and storytelling within that. Story loops by saying, you know, this guy over here has lost his shoe, and then on the other side as you're searching through it kind of like a Where's Waldo thing, you see that there's a gnome over here that's made that shoe and did their house. And so there's a way of using these pattern Plays and of human perception in creating those moments of synchronicity on demand. Two more to talk about. The second one is archetypes. Archetypes was a huge theme in Carl Jung's work. I feel as though it's such an esoteric idea within his work that it's been massively simplified. And I also don't fully feel like I grasp what he was trying to say. For the purposes of this conversation, we're gonna be talking about it through the lens of symbolism and semiotics. Just basically, how our brain interprets symbols. The study of semiotics can be like how we read the symbols on a toilet, a bathroom. Like, those symbols are not completely accurate on how we think about people, but we've come to, over time, associate them with particular things. So it can be that, but in what we're gonna talk about is more through the lens of symbolism. The way that I've come to understand Carl Jung's thoughts on archetypes and how it's traditionally spoke about is just through the imagery of symbols. A snake or a fox or a goddess or, you know, we have all of these various symbols. Carl Jung believed that they were part of what he called the collective unconscious, the unconscious piece that we share with each other. I think the collective unconscious can both be thought of as some kind of actual connection with other conscious beings through a collective kind of tissue, connective tissue, or also kind of just like instinct, pre-programming. That's probably the more materialist interpretation of we all have a part of our wiring that is hardwired and passed down through genetics and part of that could look like how arachnophobia shows up the fear of spiders is innate even if you've never encountered one not not to everyone but to lots of folks to the degree that it becomes a phobia because Even if you've never encountered a poisonous one, we have the evolution to be fearful of even just the way that that kind of insect moves to keep us safe. And so even that, I think, is a part of the collective unconscious. Jung would talk about archetypes as, you know, artists and and religious and deity images often played on these archetypes to communicate something to you. I recently one of my favorite pieces from the past couple of years for episode art was a piece that I did to illustrate the Percival Wilde quote that all great art conceals an even greater art, which, by the way, great quote to bring up in this episode, because I believe what he's getting at is the psychology that we, we are rarely aware of the ways that an artist is working through the lens of human perception. Brian McDonald, story expert, is where I originally came across that quote. He calls this invisible ink, the invisible ink in the story, the parts of the story that are working on you, whether you know they're working on you or not. Now, back to the piece when I was trying to illustrate that. I kind of got stuck and I thought, you know, rather than do something conceptual, which I don't have a huge taste for as an illustrator, it's not my favorite type of illustration. I thought, what if I start working with archetypes and I started looking into camouflage, animals that use camouflage, because an art that is concealing a greater art, it's a type of camouflage. They're hiding that invisible ink. And I just created an illustration that was a snake that was using camouflage within foliage and the line between the foliage and the camouflage and the patterns on the snake were blurred in the way that I approached it. Now what's really interesting about that to me is that on an intuitive level that might be coming through, through the lens of the collective unconscious symbolism that we all carry, but it's probably not something that registered on a conscious level. And so if you've ever found yourself being attracted to art for reasons that you can't explain. Sometimes it's because of the use of archetypes. It's one of the things that makes me feel really negative about people that demean decorative work because a lot of decorative work is often working on this visceral intuitive level of the archetypes. Let me give you an example from the book Invisible Ink, Iron Giant, that movie, incredible film, they use a very interesting kind of archetypal tool to bring the story to life. So throughout that story, the, the armature, the theme of the story is you choose who you're going to be. We are who we choose to be. And when you think about illustrating that through the lens of a story story, You can start with the archetypes of the opposite. What are the archetypes that are going to manifest the opposite of you are who you choose to be? Well, a great archetype, a great symbol is a robot. Because when we think about robots, robots are programmed to be a particular being. And that becomes this extremely potent symbol to tell that story through because the Iron Giant, even as a programmed being, ends up choosing to be more than he was designed to be, which was a war machine. And it's just a, a really interesting story about determinism and, and do we have free will. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story, but it's using this symbolic tool to bring that point to life. It's really powerful. Recently, my favorite song, as of late, I know you're interested in in my music taste. Big Thief has a new album. They're just like, to me, on another level, it might just be the fiddle. There's so much string action moving through almost every song, and I'm a sucker for that. It's a Mentos to my Diet Coke, if you know what I'm saying. And there's a line in this song, Spud Infinity, that just tore me up, especially because I'm deep in this episode and, and thinking about archetypes. It's called Spud Infinity. They're talking about celestial beings, the celestial bodies in the chorus over and over. And they say that when I say celestial, I mean extraterrestrial. I mean accepting the alien you've rejected in your own heart. And it's a, uh, man, it's such a good line because it's really... It's kind of like they have given you the little uh, little kit where you get the invisible ink and you get the little flashlight that shows you what's the invisible ink this whole chorus we're talking about celestial beings and then they just come out and say it right on the nose and say hey by the way when i'm talking about celestial beings i'm talking about aliens and when i'm talking about aliens i'm talking about The part, the alien you've rejected in your own heart and coming to accept the part of you that, that feels alien to you. Carl Jung would have loved that because they're talking about the shadow self, but that just hit me like a ton of bricks because so much art is doing just that. It's the iron giant. It's, it's the alien. I once heard back in the day, Russell Brand back, once he got into politics, I'm, I was out, but He used to be talking much more about art and and spirituality. He was doing a kind of Jungian analysis of something like Sleeping Beauty because he was analyzing this commercial that was saying we all grew up on these Disney fantasies of what love was going to be like. And he just paused him and was like, well, if you think of stories as Carl Jung would— Carl Jung would never think of them as these literal interpretations that when we engage in a story, rarely are we consciously relating that to how our life should be. But the art of storytelling and the practice of it is really much more about accepting the alien we've rejected in our own heart, (laughs) meaning all of the characters in the story are a part of us. They are telling the story of what's happening on the inside of us. And that's why the hero's journey is so powerful to me. I've never been on a hero's journey. I've never even been to New Zealand, okay? I've, I've never been to Mordor, but I can feel the power of a struggling frodo i feel like that whiny frodo often inside of my own head when i've i gotta go to the gym or i gotta show up and you know meet the deadline whatever and he would say that when it comes to sleeping beauty it's not about uh, the fact that we're we have a chosen one and there's someone waiting for us and we're gonna have this happily ever after no it's saying that there's a part of you that is sleeping And there's another part of you that's going to have to move past the dragon of your ego and somehow get past it and awaken the deeper self that has fallen into slumber. That's what the story's about. And that's the way that Jung would interpret a story. But it's also how you can create them and actually add extra explosive layers to what you're doing. In that same way, Young was big into dream analysis and would analyze dreams the same way that he would analyze fables or myths and say, you know, if you're dreaming about uh, the guy in your high school who was just desperate to be cool, let's call him Dylan. His name wasn't Dylan, (laughs) I can't say that. But if Dylan's in your dream, it's not because you're thinking about Dylan, it's because you're having an encounter, a confrontation with the part of you that's trying too hard. That's what it is. And when you tap into that level of psychology in the work that you're making, now you're cooking. And I love it too, because it's not about cerebral. It's not about IQ. We're gonna go into that in a second as well. The last one, the last psychological precept that I'd like you to embrace in your creative work is nonsense. <laughs> it's it's not that this point is complete nonsense. It's that I'm actually asking you to embrace nonsense. Here's what I mean by that. Have you ever heard of the concept of koans? There are these little nonsensical phrases that some Zen Buddhists use to access a deeper part of yourself. There are phrases like, how does one clap with one hand? And there is no clapping with one hand. It's not something you actually solve. It's a thing that you ruminate over until something that doesn't make sense makes more sense than anything that ever made sense ever did. And I like to think of it, if you'll just indulge some nonsense from me right here, right now, this doesn't make any sense. But it, on another level, it's even truer than that. I've been thinking about how scientists, quantum physicists talk about how our whole universe is made up of atoms. We know that. But the thing that you might not know is that that's only partially true. Because really, our whole universe is mostly space between atoms. Even you. You are not a solid object. In our universe, solid objects don't exist. In fact, if you pulled all of the air out of the universe, the space between atoms, the non-existing material, the whole universe would be like a sugar cube. I think that's the thing. It's definitely something extremely small. Something super teeny tiny. That would be all of the atoms. In fact, it kind of makes sense that must have been kind of the idea of the Big Bang that it all comes from one little singularity. I don't I'm not a scientist. However, when we try to wrap our heads around what the universe is, the material universe, all we can really make sense of are the atoms. Because it doesn't make sense how we're not just like s- some kind of aqua man, f- some kind of hydrogen, hydro man, just smashing through things and never really being able to connect or hold or or not pass through like some kind of Casper, if you will. How are we doing that when most of this is space? What is happening? It doesn't make any sense. That space is complete nonsense. And yet it is the stuff that makes up this universe. And in the same way, I'm wondering if that weird space between what makes sense, the space between the atoms, if perhaps that space is something truer than what we can make sense of. And in that same way, maybe that's part of what koans do. Maybe that's part of what, we're getting after. And the reason I bring this up and I wanted to end here is because when we talk about psychology, it can all get a little bit cerebral, a little bit heady. It can seem like we're talking about creativity is about IQ when in fact, they've done conclusive studies and said that IQ doesn't necessarily correlate with creativity. And it makes me think of people like Kanye West. You know, they just put out this Netflix documentary about Kanye called Genius, because he's always calling himself a genius. And I kind of, I wonder over the years, is he a genius? Only, Only in terms of IQ. I don't know what his IQ is, but he doesn't seem to exhibit the kind of traditional things that we think of as intelligent. I'm not calling him dumb. I'm just saying that whatever creative thing he's got going on, not sure it correlates with how we traditionally think of IQ, and I want you to embrace that, because as we're diving into all of these ways of deepening the work, it can sound intimidating. But in fact, one of the things, beside the the idea that creativity doesn't necessarily correlate with IQ, you can have people with very low IQ that are extremely creative. Not only is that true, but it's also true that they've found that creative people don't go around quickly solving problems, but instead are happy to play with the problem. And as we dive into embracing the psychology of your creative work, please do not allow that to get in your head. No pun intended, Connor. And instead, see it as an invitation to play around with human perception in interesting ways that don't just make your work a little bit sweeter, but hopefully make something that is explosive on a whole other level. quick CTA call to adventure, something you can do right now without any extra crazy work. I want you to name your ruby red slippers. We went through about six psychological concepts over the past two episodes. Some of them might've been new to you. Hopefully all of them were adding extra layers that you hadn't completely encountered before, or maybe they were just good reminders However, whether you've used use all these or use none of them, if you're making creative work at all, you are working within human psychology, even if it's just the psychology of how we interpret color. What I want you to do is realize that you've had the ruby red slippers on the whole time and name them. Look back through your work. When was your work most Mentos key? When did that happen? isolate that deconstruct it get to the bottom of what is going on there and give it a name or go search out what other people call it naming it will make it so much easier to recognize when it when that opportunity comes up again and implement it to a more powerful degree The next time you use that technique, it might not be just Mentos and Coca-Cola Classic. It might have the effect of the Diet Coke. Maybe you'll find the audience with the type of brain that really reacts to what you've got going on. So name your ruby red slippers, name your Mentos. What is the tool? You know, it, it might not be archetypes, it might not be nonsense or synchronicity or the ones we talked about last week, but find it. Find its name or name it so that you can pull it up whenever you need it. All right, huge thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music absolutely let's celebrate connor jones and the incredible work he does on this show he uh, this show is just at a place now that i never i could have never done by myself or never saw coming and i just really really appreciate the work that connor jones of pending beautiful does in the editing and the work that Ryan Appleton and Sophie Miller, a.k.a. Sophie Pizza, and Katie Chandler do. I'm so pumped about where this is going. We got a big, huge freaking plans in the works of where we want to go next. And I just appreciate all, all of you so much. Until we speak again, do whatever it takes to stay pepped up.